Well, we're beginning a new series today in the book of Revelation and we're going to take a while to get through it. We'll be finished in mid-November. We'll have a few little breaks along the way. Someone who heard that I am going to be spending 10 months and 35 sermons to preach through Revelation said to me, do you not like the people in your church? Uh, for her, at least, in her growth and um, learning about the Bible, Revelation seems complex and scary and a bit weird. So why would you want to delve into it for so long? It's not something you'd want to spend so much time exploring, possibly. Well, my response was to say, did you know that the book of Revelation contains more cross-references to every other part of the Bible than any other book? The book of Revelation contains more Old Testament references than any other New Testament book. This book ties together all of the threads of salvation history that we can trace through the Bible and it paints the most magnificent picture of the crucified, risen, reigning, returning Christ. So why would we not want to spend a long time digging into its depths? In uh, my ministry, this this will be the seventh time I've taught through Revelation. It's the most most number of times I've taught through any book in the Bible because there's just so much there. Every time I prepare, I learn something new. Revelation has not only been the most controversial book in the Bible, it's also been the greatest source of comfort and blessing and encouragement to Christians throughout the centuries from the very beginning. So I'm looking forward to this journey, as I hope you are too. I trust you got one of these as you came in. If not, there's probably a few more still left out the back. You can grab one. The introduction to Revelation, I'm not going to work through this this morning but I will be touching on some things that are in there and uh, if, if you bring your Bible to church then keep it in your Bible so that you've got it with you each Sunday or bring it with you because uh, I may at times refer to things in there. These first eight verses of Revelation give us a summary of what this book is all about and so it'll be helpful for us just to work through uh, John's introduction to this book as we prepare to start digging in uh, in the coming months. The first thing to note is that it's a single revelation. It is the revelation, singular. Uh, Some people call it the book of revelations as if it's a, a multiple collection of revelations, but we're told it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It contains a number of visions But all of the visions together give us a complete picture of one thing, which isn't a thing, it's a person of Jesus Christ. We could think of it like a jigsaw puzzle in which all the pieces fit together to form one single image. I've known pastors who have preached on Revelation but they've just stuck to chapters 1 to 3, the seven churches, Uh, being afraid to go any further in case they cause confusion or division. And I think taking only parts of the book that are easy to understand is a bit like me saying, 
come and see the jigsaw puzzle that I've done and when I show it to you, you find I've only done the edges, the easy bits with the straight sides. So we're going to explore the whole book, even the difficult bits and we're going to take our time doing it so that we get a sense of this magnificent picture that it gives us. Now this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, can be taken in two ways. It's what uh, scholars call the subjective genitive and the objective genitive. What that means is, uh, this subjective genitive means uh, that it's a, it speaks of the thing that is revealed. It's Jesus Christ who is revealed. The second means it is the person doing the revealing That means in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is made known to us and Jesus does the revealing to us of the purposes of God in history and how he is at the centre of that. Or simply put, Revelation is Jesus making himself known to us. So our primary question when reading this book should be, how does it tell me more about Jesus? And the second question is, how does it show me how Jesus is bringing his Father's plans to completion? Note that there's a progression here in the way that this revelation is given. Hopefully that's readable. God the Father gave it to him, to Jesus, Then Jesus sent his angel, which could be referring to a spiritual being or a human messenger. More likely here in this context it's a spiritual being and we'll encounter many angels through the book. The angel then delivers it to John, who's called Jesus' servant. John then passes it on by writing it down and then sending it via messages to the churches. So finally it gets to the churches, to us. Now this might seem like a long, complex chain of transmission, but it's designed to give us confidence in the trustworthiness of the book. See how in verse 5 Jesus is called the faithful witness. We can implicitly trust Jesus when he tells us what he has received from the Father. We can also trust the angels because the angels are sent directly from the presence of God. When they speak, it's equivalent to God himself speaking. As you see in the Old Testament, people meet an angel and the next thing they're in the presence of the Lord himself. John, an apostle, was commissioned and authorised by Jesus himself. And verse 2 tells us he bore witness to what he saw and heard. John was then told to write down what he saw, which is a way of saying that this revelation is to be inscripturated, becoming an official document that could then be taken as authoritative by the churches who received it. So when we eventually we'll come to chapters 21 and 22, we'll read this. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And then in chapter 22, and he said to me, the angel, these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. These words are trustworthy and true. The angel and God himself swears an oath that the contents of revelation are worthy of our trust as the very word of God. So, because of this, we can know that this book is going to be a blessing to all who read it and take it to heart. See that there are three things that we must do with Revelation. Firstly, we must read it and that word implies reading aloud because when it was first received by the churches, there were those who couldn't read and so these, this book would have been read out aloud to the whole congregation. Today, very few of us are literate, Ill- illiterate. We have easy access to the book, so we have no excuse to not read it for ourselves. But uh, those who are rostered down to do the Bible readings, you will be blessed as you read aloud the words of this prophecy. Uh, if you want to know that blessing and you're not on the roster for Bible reading, talk to me and I can add you on so that you can have that blessing. Secondly, uh, we must hear it. Meaning with a sense of wanting to understand what's being read. Hearing not just the sounds with our ears but also with our minds and our hearts. And thirdly, we must Keep it, meaning paying attention closely with the aim of having the words shape our lives and our obedience to Jesus. To be, as James 1.22 says, doers of the word and not hearers only. So doing these three things, reading, hearing, keeping, will bring blessing to us. Rather than being confused or scared, which is how some people respond to the strange and confronting uh, images in the book, John, uh, Jesus wants us to be encouraged, comforted and spurred on to love and good works as we see him more clearly and as we see how he's at work today and into our future. So let's have an expectation that we will be blessed as we see Jesus in the pages of Revelation. Well, what does being blessed look like? John tells us by the words that he uses in his formal greeting, grace and peace to you from him. Now, the him here is the triune God, the eternal Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come. The Father rules and oversees and determines the course of history, not only knowing the end from the beginning, but actually making it come to pass by his sovereign decrees. Nothing happens, not even a sparrow falling from the sky happens outside of his will. He is the one who is and was and is to come. Then there's the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now we'll encounter this description of the Holy Spirit Uh, again in chapters 3, 4 and 5 and this is 
the first occasion in Revelation where numbers are used symbolically. Seven is a number that signified to ancient people divine completeness and perfection. Using numbers in the Bible is meant to make us recall the first time that that number appears in the Bible, in the Scriptures, which is the creation of the world. God made the world in six days and then the seventh day of rest when creation was finished, was very good, was perfect and they were days in which the Spirit himself was hovering over the waters and actively working with the Father and the Son to bring all things into being and into a good and perfect order. So this term isn't saying literally there are seven Holy Spirits but that the Spirit displays and communicates completely and perfectly his own nature as God in all its perfections. And from Jesus Christ, the Son, the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, referring to his own resurrection and the fact that his resurrection is the basis for our resurrection and that by his resurrection he was declared to be the King of Kings with all authority in heaven and on earth. So all three persons of the Trinity are the authors of this book and we'll encounter all three as we study it. So Jesus not only makes himself known, he makes the Father known and the Spirit known so that we may have this fellowship in the fullness of who God is, knowing Jesus' Father as our Father, knowing his Spirit as the Spirit who dwells within us. Now, this truth should lead us to worship. We'll see that this book is full of songs of praise. And the first short one, even though it doesn't look like it by the way it's laid out, is here in verses 5 to 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. It's a song of praise to Jesus for his finished work of redemption and his present work in his royal people. In Jesus, the truth of who God has, who, who God is has been brought to bear on us and our lives. Jesus is the one who's freed us from sin in his atoning death. And having freed us, he has then restored us back to our full status and dignity as creatures made in his image, designed to rule over all the other creatures and all creation, to be priests of God's glory to all creation. So our reason for our worship is twofold. We worship him for who he is and we worship him for what he has done for us. The ultimate goal of this book is for us to be inspired to fall before his throne and worship him and give him the glory he deserves. Now because he has all glory and dominion forever and ever, we can confidently look forward to his appearing. Coming with the clouds 
It's a phrase that's taken directly out of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, one like a son of man comes in the clouds, approaches the Ancient of Days on the throne and is given an eternal kingdom and peoples, nations and languages worship him. So, there are two aspects actually to this idea of Jesus coming. Firstly, it's him coming before the throne of his Father and receiving a kingdom, receiving all authority in heaven and earth and under the earth. And secondly, it's him coming to us to reign over us as our sovereign king. So what we'll see is that Revelation gives us an assurance for two time frames, the present and the future. We know that he's reigning now from the Father's right hand so that all that happens is under his sovereign rule and we can declare now Jesus is Lord without any qualifications or limitations. Not Jesus will be Lord or one day he'll be fully Lord. He is Lord. And we know that one day he will come and bring his sovereign rule to bear on this world, judging all evil and vindicating his people. Now, for those who have rejected that rule, there will be wailing as they face the judgment that they deserve. Who are those who pierced him? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. We might think he's speaking of the historical people, the Jews and the Romans of that generation who literally crucified Jesus. But the way that the grammar is constructed is is connected with the every eye before it. This phrase comes from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So who is the one that they have pierced here? It's actually the Lord himself. And those who look on him are the leaders and the people of Israel. So there is on one level a moral accountability on the Jews for their rejection of their own Messiah, both the Jews in Jesus' day and every Jew since then who has rejected him. But here we see this quote connected with every eye before it and then all the tribes of the earth after it. All of humanity is guilty of piercing Jesus. Even if we weren't literally historically the ones who drove the nails into his hands and feet. Those who crucified Jesus did so on behalf of the whole human race. It would have made no difference which nation, people, tribe or tongue that Jesus came to. He could have been Chinese, Indian, Australian, African, Mongolian, 
we all would have called for his crucifixion. On that day that Jesus returns, all the secrets of every heart will be revealed and every person will stand before him. No one will be with excuse. So there will be wailing, but for those who know him by faith, who have entrusted ourselves to him as the faithful witness, as the firstborn from the dead, who know and trust that our names are written in his book of life, which we'll see in this book, not because of your works, but because of his free grace, it will be a time of great joy when we will be with the Lord forever in the new creation. So, reading Revelation will enable us to wait for that day of Jesus' return with the sure hope of knowing that he is good, he is just, he is the all-powerful Son of Man and the Lamb of God who's taken away our sin. This verse ends with these two words. One in Greek, even so, and the other, Hebrew translated into Greek, Amen. Now these are words that you would use when swearing an oath to seal what you've sworn, to say this is the truth, it will certainly come to pass. That's why we use the word Amen at the end of our prayers as a way of affirming that what we've just asked and said of God we truly believe. For the original readers of Revelation living in the second half of the first century, it already seemed like a long time since Jesus had come, nearly a generation. Some of the first Christians had already died, some by martyrdom, some by old age. They hadn't seen Jesus return. They needed the assurance that Jesus' promise to come again still stood. They needed to keep patiently waiting, not knowing if it would happen in their lifetime or in a future generation. How much more then do we need that assurance? As we stand here 2,000 years, still waiting and watching. We need to know that the one who swears this oath, who made this pledge, and seals it with, even so, and amen, is God himself. I think the person who inserted the verse numbers in, uh, he actually put the number eight in the wrong place. Uh, It should have come before those words, even so, amen, I am the Alpha and Omega. It's God who is saying these words. When God swears an oath, he swears it on his own character. See what we see in Hebrews chapter 6. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope 
set before us. The God who says, even so, and amen, does so on the basis of who he is. He calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, meaning he's the first and the last, the eternal one who was there before the beginning, will be there after the end. And the phrase is like R, A to Z, meaning not only the beginning and the end, but everything that's in between. It's worth noting that every other place that this term appears in Revelation, it's spoken of by Jesus. He takes upon himself a title that can only be true of God, showing himself to be truly God. And at the end, he calls himself the Almighty. Now, this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament title, the Lord of Hosts, or the Lord Sabaoth. It means the supreme commander of all of the armies of heaven, who acts in absolute power and authority to do what he sets out to do. And in the Old Testament, it's often used in conjunction with when he makes a promise, a guarantee that he will not rest until it's done. And then in the middle of these two titles is this description. The Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. We saw that already in verse 4. And did you notice that it's out of chronological order? It starts in the present, looks to the past and then to the future. That's because it's emphasising the present reality of God, that he is the God who first of all is he who is. Which should make us think of the name revealed to Abraham and to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh, which when translated into Greek is Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're not just saying he has all authority, but that he himself is the Lord, Yahweh himself. So the one swearing this oath is the Lord God, Yahweh, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God who swore an oath to Abraham and who remained faithful forever to his people Israel. There's uh, two more general things that I want to say about Revelation that will be helpful to us as we prepare to work our way through it. Firstly, it's really important in reading any book of the Bible to recognise the kind of literature that it is so that we read it correctly. Uh, Revelation is what scholars have called apocalyptic, which is, means revelatory. This style of writing was used by the Jews, particularly during and after the exile, because it's a type of literature that was also used by uh, the Babylonians and so the Jews adopted that style of literature. Some Old Testament prophets, especially Daniel and Ezekiel, use apocalyptic and these two books will have a lot of connections, we'll see, with Revelation. The purpose of apocalyptic is to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to those who have ears to hear, as Jesus said, and to keep those mysteries hidden to those who don't want to hear. 
It uses symbols and numbers and pictures to convey actual truths. So to one person it seems like a fanciful story without any meaning. To another it is a revealing, an apocalypse of the kingdom. When you hear that word apocalypse, don't think terrible disasters, think revelation. Apocalypse isn't meant to be read in a a literal sense like historical narrative. We should look beyond the symbols to the realities to which they point, which in Revelation is Jesus Christ and his sovereign rule as Lord and Christ. In 1 verse 1, the word translated made it known, he made this revelation known, means literally signify. It's the same word used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus' miracles as signs. Signs which pointed beyond themselves to his identity as the Messiah. So in understanding apocalyptic, there are four levels. I know that might look a bit complex to you. It's, it's in the booklet, um, I think. No, it's not in the booklet, but it is. Oh, it is, good. Um, but it's, it's in the newsletter, sorry, in the newsletter. It's actually quite simple when, when I explain it to you. The first level is the text, what we actually read, what we actually hear. Obviously, we need to understand the words and believe that, that these words are God speaking to us in a living way to produce faith in our hearts. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Uh, And I've got there as an example the words, the text of chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. The second level is the vision itself. As we read the words, we will form in a picture in our mind's eye so that we imagine what John actually saw. Remember, John isn't just thinking these things, John is actually seeing these things and he's writing them down and describing what he sees. So in 5 five to 7, it's a lamb, alive even though it had been slain, with multiple horns and eyes, who comes to the throne and takes the scroll from the hand of God. And just pop on the internet, do a search for this reference Choose images and you'll find all kinds of artistic uh, impressions of this as well as all the other visions in Revelation. So we, we, we need to be using our imaginations and picturing in our minds what it would have been that John was actually seeing. The third level is called the referential, the historical, spiritual or personal reality that is being symbolised by the picture. picture. What is the picture referring to or the different elements in the picture. Now in this case, the lamb signifies Jesus, which we know because of the other places in the the Bible that use the lamb imagery for Jesus. So it's obvious. This vision is a vision of Jesus. And the fourth level is the symbolic. In other words, what does the use of this particular symbolism tell us about the nature of the reality and how we should be responding to this. So we look at the images, the the symbols in this vision. The slain lamb points to his atoning sacrifice, the horns to his power as the risen reigning king, the eyes as the spirit 
whom he pours out on God's people. And taking the scroll, his authority to unfold the Father's purposes for the church and for the world. So that's the approach that we'll be taking uh, as we go through this book. The second thing I want to uh, mention is you'll see on page 8 of the introduction book how historically Christians have taken different approaches to interpreting Revelation. Now probably more than we're willing to admit, our own place in history, our situation within our culture and the events taking place around us and in the world, as well as our own upbringing and influences, will shape the way that we choose to interpret Revelation. I have to acknowledge that the way I approach it is because of the way that I have been taught through Bible teachers over the years. So the reformers liked the historicist approach because it fitted in well with their assessment of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Then a Catholic came up with the preterist view as a way to counteract the reformers' view because if the reformers were saying the Pope is the Antichrist, the Catholics said, oh no, he can't be because that all happened before AD 70, so the Pope cannot be. So it was kind of this counteraction thing. The futurist view was also expressed by Catholics as another way to counteract the Reformation, but then it became more popular among evangelicals, particularly in the late 18th and into, sorry, the, eight, the late 19th and into the 20th century, especially as Christendom began crumbling and as the wars and the events of the 20th century made Christians feel that the persecutions and the, the judgments described in the book could be just around the corner. Now, as I say in the introduction, I'll be taking the idealist approach. Not, not, because, not only because it's been the most widely and longest held view through Christian history, but for two other reasons. Firstly, because I believe it's the best way to uh, respectfully read and understand the book as apocalyptic literature, as I've just explained. But secondly, because I believe this approach makes the book of Revelation relevant to all generations of Christians, not just those in the first century, not just those in the final generation. The whole book will have something to say to us, regardless of where we are in the timeline of Christ's work among his church as he prepares us to be that pure, spotless bride that he'll present to himself. So, preterism can make revelation into history. That makes us feel it's not relevant to us today. Even if we learn some lessons from it or follow the example of the first Christians. And it's a, preterism is a reminder to us that we always need to be reading and understanding what did the first readers of this book, what did it mean to them, what was the context uh, in that late first century. Futurism can make it into a whole lot of things that we can be prepared for just in case we're the final generation. Uh, it can also lead to all kinds of predictions and date setting. But it also reminds us that we need to be looking forward and always expecting the return of Jesus at any time. We 
we could be the final generation. Are we prepared for that? Historicism says that the, the only, only the bit of the book that corresponds to our place in history, wherever that is, is relevant to us. But it also reminds us that Christ has been at work in every step and every stage of the church, of history. Idealism, that view, if you want to call it that, tells us that Jesus Christ is speaking to us today in a living way in every part of the book, regardless of where or when we're living. It enables us to know the full blessing that will come from reading and hearing and keeping the words of this prophecy. Let's pray.